Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Horror and moral terror are your friends. If they are not, then they are enemies to be feared. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, according to a recent study with, I'm sure, just impeccable methods and measures, people who watched Akira Kurosawa's masterpiece, Ikiru, experienced a significant reduction in death anxiety. So you've now watched Ikiru. Do you fear deathless? That's such an interesting question. I literally finished watching it like an hour before this recording. And throughout the movie, I started feeling death, like visceral death anxiety. And by the end, it's true. I felt less. Less yeah. than like before you watched it or less than at Less the peak? than because it hasn't been in it's, – it's hard to know like yeah. whether that's going to have a lasting effect. Or I, I'm sure compared to other times when I've had death anxiety – being confronted with death by the end of this movie made me feel less anxious than it, than having been confronted with death in my daily life with something else, if that makes sense. So, like, so is that, like, this is not necessarily good comic uh, opening segment stuff, but, like, is it something that just hits you, like, uh, all of a sudden? Um, and then all of a sudden you start, like, really getting stressed out about it? Like, how is it phenomenologically? Uh, yeah, oh, like the death anxiety. Yeah, so what happens is when I'm faced with death, in everyday life, there's like a point where if I just ignore it, if I don't let it seep in uh, long enough and I just mm -hmm. move on to the next thing, then I'm fine. If I actually start thinking about things like the person actually dying, you know, like, like, or the mo their last moments, right. then it actually starts for me to, to like resemble or is um, the beginnings of a panic attack. So, oh, wow. yeah. So it's like, you know, it's not it's not that severe given the frequency, but it's very uncomfortable. Like it's actually, I was just thinking today about how I remember talking when I was in college to somebody who worked in a hospice, and obviously they they were counselor who worked in a hospice. They see death all the time, and I told them in college, I said, I can't believe that you can deal with this. And I remember them telling me, No, actually, I'm existentially just healthier because because I deal with death all the time. And I've always thought right. I just do too much avoidance of it because I avoid the thought, I avoid the discomfort of death. Like I never really just let the, like, you know, face it. And I think that's what, when you and your ilk talk about like hallucinogenic drug experiences, maybe that's just allowing you to sort of 
process the information about death in a little bit of a more expansive way, not in just like the super restricted, like I'm losing everything like in that last moment. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. My hallucinogenic experiences haven't, I don't think been a significant thing for me when it comes to like how I feel about death. Um, but you were already low on death anxiety. Yeah, I was already yeah. low on it. I think that's really interesting. And, and not only low, but like non-existent pretty much. Yeah. Like, uh, and then there was a little blip where I kind of felt it. Like, uh, and then right. I feel like I don't even have that anymore. I'm back huh. to being just low. Like, yeah. you know, when you go, you go. That's kind of how I yeah. feel, you know. Yeah. Like, plus, you know, I'll probably just live on as a prankster spirit afterwards. So, <laughs> you know. Tamler Loki. We can talk about that at some at this more at some other time because I'm kind of curious as to like your when when you think about your own death, whether you do you mind wander about your like your last moments, like how you're gonna die and what you're gonna be thinking. And, you know, None see, of that. I yeah, I mind wander a lot and and I wonder if that's a cause or an effect. Like my goal, like here's my how I would like to die is just you know, I'm old. I'm I'm not like so old that like my last ten years have just been a misery and a burden on like me and like everyone, like the people I love. Right. I mean, it's not been a burden qua your age, right? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, right. I, I'm all I'm always just a t- like a little bit of a burden. But then, like, I want to go. I want to have some disease where it's like, okay, this is it. And then I want to go into hospice, uh, and I just want to do like morphine for like until until I yeah know, until I right. that's it for me. right fuck that like desire to die with a clear head I want to die in bliss yeah I want to die on morphine yeah um, and do you want to be a do you want to be awake some people want to be asleep when they die I guess I want to be asleep yeah I don't know I kind of want to know when I'm fading I want to at least have that last experience of yeah death. I actually want that too yeah and then because it does seem like people you know, people report, like, it looked like they recognized something yeah. or, you know. Yeah. Um, now I need, by the way, to just go snort a Xanax. <laughs> 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 but you know what, Tamler? I'm jealous. I'm actually, I'm envious. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Your fear of death. <laughs> okay, good transition. Um, before we go to that, though, like, we should say that <laughs> the second segment... We are going to be talking about, let's see, uh, Kant. No, we're going to be talking about <laughs> Ikiru, the movie by Akira Kurosawa that we've just... But before, before that, we came across an article that, given Tamler's love of dogs and my love of science, I thought was a, a nice sort of inter- interface. This is a recent article by um, a researcher named um, Amalia, Amalia Bastos from the University of Auckland and, and others. I didn't write down all of their names. And it's from Psych Science. And it's on dogs and jealousy. So I take it as both, both dog owners, um, yeah. and we've owned many dogs, this is, it's obviously true to us that dogs have jealousy, right? Yes. Yeah. It's um, sort of like there's no, other, there's no other explanation that I could find that would, be, that would parsimoniously account for the behaviors of, of my dog. Um, but but it, hasn't, it hasn't been demonstrated scientifically in the way that would satisfy people, especially people who study emotions, because they have all these like criteria for what my count is an emotion. And and jealousy specifically has been kind of framed or classified as one of these social emotions that tend to require more cognitive capabilities. So 
in order to feel jealous or or shame or embarrassment, you you know people think that you need at least to have some minimally some conception of yourself and a conception of of another and you know it, it, some representation of a relationship. Se- seems like a, a pretty cognitively heavy kind of emotion uh, to experience. Um, but other people have actually tried to demonstrate the dogs have jealousy in the lab, and they've done. The authors think say, report that there's been at least four successful studies that show um, jealous behavior in the lab. And what they did in those studies was um, have a, a condition where the owner of the dog is interacting with another dog, or they're interacting with an inanimate object, and they're they're performing the same behaviors, presumably. Um, like right. they're they're petting inanimate objects and calling saying good dog and dogs appear to behave uh, in a more characteristically jealous way. Their behaviors um, s- appear to to fit jealousy more when they're petting another dog than when they're petting uh, an inanimate object. But those those studies have had this confound where they've not really looked to see whether the mere presence of another dog might be inducing this. So like it could be, as the others point out, the just there being another dog in the room gets them excited or anxious or, you know, territorial. And that's why the dogs are starting to act up. So, um, so in this study, which I thought was clever design, what they did was they, they use these fake dogs, these like big, uh, furry fake dogs, and they tied up the dog, the subject, the participant, which is the dog. And they had the owner sit, I think five meters away and they showed the dog this fake dog. They even talk about how from five meters away, dogs can't distinguish a real from a fake dog. So, so what they did was they showed the owner uh, sitting with a dog in front of it, but then they hid, they occluded the dog and they had the owner, obviously they could, they, they could still see above like the waist of the, of the owner and the owner's like doing the petting motion and going saying like, good boy, good dog or whatever. Right. Um, and they really tightly controlled what they were able to say. Um, like they couldn't use like training commands or anything that might other than what was in the script. And they also um, occluded their eyes so like the owner couldn't see or hear what the dog was doing so that there wouldn't be any sort of like demand effects. They weren't re- reacting. Um, and then they compared that to the dog owner petting a cylinder with fur. So obviously not a dog. And doing the same exact thing, like saying good dog, petting it. And this is one of my favorite parts. What Their measurement of jealous behavior, and I think this, this fits with at least my intuition and my observing of my dog, is that they say jealousy is a very much an approach behavior. Like the dog wants to get in between you mm-hmm. and, and the thing. So mm-hmm. they had the dog tied to a thing that measures force in uh, Newtons. In fig Newtons. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and so they could they could take a measurement of like how much the dog was scrambling to get to the owner. So what they find is that the dog um, in the even when they can't see the the other dog, but the owner is petting it, um, they they exert much more force than when they're petting a cylinder and saying the same things. Like the amount of force that they would that they would pull for if there were four fig newtons. <laughs> if there were four fig newtons in front of them. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> it's exactly. I mean, it is a cool study, and I know I, you know, I'm always I always remember the first time I ever saw Lori Santos go give a talk about theory of mind and and was it uh, was think, it was it at the conference where you saw me give a talk? I, yeah, yeah, I think where where, where yeah. we met. Yeah, and you yeah. gave the Chip uh, Ellsworth exactly. Yeah, 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 
Exactly. And, and like, and I always remember like, you know, like theory of mind, I think in capuchin monkeys or something. And then everyone was kind of trying to uh, come up with alternate explanations, alternate hypothesis, like, no, they can't have that. And I'm sure that's what happens with dogs. But if you've had a dog, and in particular, if you've had two dogs, like I've had for the last (laughs) 10 years, uh, there is absolutely no way that Charlie, uh, not Omar, Omar is actually like a little different in this way, but Charlie feels so much jealousy when I get, when I give attention to Omar that he's o- like, Omar has compersion. Is that what like Omar's- I think Omar likes to be like a cuck. Like I think he's like, <laughs> he, likes he likes to watching. be cuckold. Like- yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Like he, he, he's weird perverted more perverted animal than charlie who is just uh you know like as a hound but he he will we will give him we just give he was the first dog we give him more attention because he needs it more but then if we then go to omar and start giving him attention he just starts going oh oh, no like what are you doing like (laughs) and and he does that to the point where it's like almost annoying and he was and he really just he gets like stressed out and upset when we give attention to Omar and like uh, never mind like another dog. Um, yeah. So um, yeah, it's like it's it's obvious, but I'm glad they did this because I'm yeah, glad too, that there's not I don't, some. I don't want there to be doubt. Uh, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Charlie is unbelievable because he's so jealous and needy at times, and he does like the depth of his love is like greater than I've ever seen in another animal or maybe person. But, like, he's also, like, pretty stubborn and wants to do things on his own terms. So, like, the nerve of him, like, a lot of the times if I kind of feel like, you know, I've had a hard day and I just want (laughs) someone, like, to snuggle with or something. If he's not into it, he's just like, no, fuck you. And But that's where Omar comes in. Little cuck Omar will come on the bed, like, and just, you know, he'll do it. Your your polyamorous strategy pays off because you cover all your bases. Exactly. I really like reading when people come up with these clever ways of, of like avoiding compounds. I mean, it's like a, it's just a cool little, they've built a cool little way to address, to address some of those criticisms. And it is true that like, there is such a strong, strong, this is like the, the uh, echoes of behaviorism being so dominant where like people don't want to attribute mental states to animals at all. Yeah, and so the the burden is high to demonstrate um, something like that. So the, the guy who used Yuck Pangsep, who used to argue that rats can tickle, yeah. I mean rats can be tickled, and they and that they laugh. Um, the uh, the amount of sort of vitriol from the behaviorist uh, camp of researchers who are still there and very strong, like they would come up with all kinds of alternative explanations uh, for for this behavior in the rats um, that didn't rely on attributing an emotion to them. Right. You know? And they're convoluted. That's the funny yeah. thing. It's like, I don't know, like this is what struck me with the Lori Santos and it probably wasn't as bad as what you're talking about, but it's like, it seems like the simplest explanation is they just have theory of mind or they feel these emotions or they can tickle. But like, you're right that the burden is heavily on the people who attribute um, to what they think happens. There's this like fear of anthropomorphizing right. or of um, that, right. uh, that seems to trump, but I don't know what the like theoretical basis for making that be the, bur- the burden. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. It was, I think because the, the push to be seen as a real science in the fifties was, was so high and so influenced by positivism and the focus was only on behavior. 
And like combined with the fact that behaviorism did do a good job of explaining, predicting, and controlling the behavior of so many animals that they viewed it as successful, it just became behaviorism in the in right. like in the sort of sense of you know the paradigm that needed to be. Um, it's like dogmatic in the yeah. way that you're dogmatic about a little bit. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. The <laughs> It's funny that the term anthropomorphism was originally meant attributing human traits to gods who who uh, did not right, like the, like right. that was the error. The error is like the gods are so much you know grander than us. Don't attribute your petty jealousy to right. them. <laughs> right, right, right. Which we definitely do. I mean, like the Greek gods are just like humans. Yeah, they're just like Melrose Place. Power. It's like Melrose Place. For the <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I I think like dogs. Um, and 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 I I will say like I Charlie has especially my dog because um, and I've had a lot of dogs too but he I think he has like emotional layers and depths that like couldn't like jealousy is just the scratching the surface for what yeah. he feels like I feel like like there are times both Eliza and I have had this experience independently is like when we come home and we're not giving attention to Omar we give attention to Charlie and then we just kind of look at our phones for a second out of habit oh yeah yeah he my gets dog like. Is- Yes. disappointed like, yeah. almost like he's nope, like what absolutely are you doing? absolutely yeah. so my dog uh, i don't have multiple dogs but i have two cats in this house yeah but uh who and he is always jealous of the cats if if the cats are on nikki at all he yeah. he knows that he can't jump in and attack but he just sits there vigilantly like and the minute the cats sort of leave he jumps yeah. like and tries to attack him but even worse He's so he's so bonded to Nikki that if I'm like next to her and I like hug her or touch her physically, right. he dives in between us. Like he just really, all I have to do is pretend to make kissy noises, and I do it all the time just to fuck with him. And he just yeah. dives and plops his body on top, like as if he's saving her from. <laughs> yeah, which, you yeah. Know, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> maybe there's something to that. Yeah, Jen actually sometimes gets jealous when I'm fucking the dog. <laughs> well, why um, do you do that, it when she's there? <laughs> I, I don't most of the time, but sometimes it's like hotter if you sneak in a quickie. You know, it's more like forbidden in the broom <laughs> closet. <laughs> like my previous dog Tess was, she was just an unbelievable interpreter of my mental state. Like she could, she knew my feelings even like better than any human could have in terms of just, yeah. like, if I was just a little upset or annoyed or something like that, she yeah. would react to that. Um, I mean, we bred, you know, like, it's yeah. it's pretty clear that we bred traits where they would pay more attention to us, right? And, yeah. and to, like, it's it's kind of, it's fascinating what we've done. I, I look at my dog, who's a mutt, but probably has some border collie on it, according to the the person who, mm-hmm. who rescued him. And, um, but, like, he does things like, pointer behavior like i've never it's it's just odd like he'll like, like lift, lift up the yeah, yeah lift up yeah. the arm and like look at his toy and i'm like you're not hunting motherfucker <laughs> this is not, yeah it's useless no. to me <laughs> Tess did that too you yeah know. <laughs> the yeah i think they're like really because we've evolved and and also like we've evolved together you yeah know? like dogs have been around um certainly in time for us to also evolve sort right. of behaviors in relation to them or dispositions and like the, the kind of bonds and the kind of connection is is extremely yeah. like deep and um, yeah kind of undeniable if you've had it like you almost wonder with some of these people who are raising objections like you haven't had a dog right or maybe they just think I am too prone even myself to project my 
my traits onto a like a machine. <laughs> right. I mean, and like kids is, is even an entirely different t- category too, where the theories theories of development, as much as there were theories of development and behaviorism, were ridiculous for just anybody who's had a kid would be willing to <laughs> to say a lot more about say innate tendencies in one kid versus another kid right like there's there's some shit that they come into the world with like they just they just are neurotic or or positive like from the moment they start interacting with you it's interesting like some of these things might be defensible from like a scientific perspective Others are just, it just seems like an accident that where the default um, position is, who has the burden of proof in terms of, um, you know, like, you know, with child development stuff, it doesn't seem like it's more plausible that they will, you know, they would have to be much older before they could have any kind of sophisticated cognitive abilities. Same with, with, with animals. It doesn't seem like it's, it's obvious that the burden of proof should be on the people who are trying to impute to them qualities that, that yes, that we have, but also like we're mammals. And yeah. so like, there's, why should we, shouldn't we think that other mammals besides us have those things? You know, there's even like in a more uh, local sort of local as in smaller level of theory you have. Um, so, so my answer to that was going to be, you know, the, the ebb and flow of theories changes the default assumptions, obviously. But you even have it, like, not not with any great paradigm shifts, but um, for a long time, so in what we call social cognition, which was the sort of marriage of social psychology and kind of psychology, uh, for a while, if you made a claim about an emotion, the burden of proof would be on you because the default assumption was this could be explained solely in terms of cognition. Right, you don't need an emotion to explain it. That shifted, like I in within my time, like in the '90s and the early 2000s, the science of emotion became so dominant that now you don't you don't get any pushback if you say like this was an emotion. So, what would be an example if somebody said like, um, uh, if so, you acted resentfully towards somebody or something? Or? Yeah, so they might say this. A lot of this took took place in uh, debates about motivation. People used to favor these motivational theories, like you have a drive to do this. And people just uh, kind of with a computer metaphor would try to find ways in which, no, this is information processing. And like a goal hierarchy can be, you can understand it just in terms of like maximizing the output. Not You don't right. have to posit that like I, I'm like, I have this hot state or this. Um, so it's it like was, rational choice theory. Exactly, kind of. exactly yeah. that kind of thing. Um, and... And and now it's almost the other way around. Like, well, I yeah. think uh, former guest and friend of the show Bob Frank might have played a role in yeah for in, sure yeah uh, that shift yeah, right. For sure. uh, and it's funny we you read Passions Within Reason and, and what is that eighty eight? You can see that he's arguing a a case that people wouldn't feel you need to argue <laughs> yeah, hard for right exactly yeah. yeah exactly now now it's sort of like well yeah it's a <laughs> and, and like you're right that it's changed over the like course of our careers, which are roughly like the same length. Because I didn't, I don't think I would have thought that for the first five years or six years. Mm-hmm. It was like, yeah, this is what you have to do, and he's right. Like, this is what these people think, and, and it has really changed. So I always, good. for my students, I always point to the the first publication that I ever got was a paper that I titled "The Role of Emotions in Moral Judgment," because in the year 2000, 
I could like I could title a paper like that because it was like, oh, emotions in moral judgment. Like, uh, <laughs> wow. and now if you try to title that now, they'd be like, what emotions and what judgment? Like, what are you talking about? Like, of course, emotions play a role in moral judgment. <laughs> right at the time, it was just they play a role. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And it's like, well, uh, yeah. all right. Like Kohlberg's cognitive development uh, that was all dominant. Like all the yeah, it was. All, that's right. It's yeah. that's a big part of this too. Yeah. I mean, not for the moral stuff, not for the. Uh, theory of mind stuff but maybe also that you know like because isn't that also some kind of step is when you get theory of mind that allows you and so maybe that's why they're so stingy about uh, offering theory of mind to any other creature any other species yeah maybe so like the Kohlberg you get directly from Piaget so you go (laughs) this is actually how you go you go Kant to Rawls to Piaget to Kohlberg and that influenced sort of like the lack of emotion and moral judgment when when we started doing this shit back in the early 2000s. Um, but in sort of more traditional cognitive development, like people like Piaget all, of course, believed that there was mind and there was the ability for the child to, to like represent things. And he did a lot of that early work showing, you know, the emergence of certain cognitive abilities. Like everybody knows the sort of the, the tasks where you fill uh, – a, a tall skinny glass and you ask kids will it fit in this short fat glass and they say no that conservation of matter stuff um so he was positing that there were like complex cognitive things going on in the child over time and then behaviorism hit and then then yeah. it was erased it was like erased and then you had to let, then go prove that kids actually have a theory of mind Weird. okay yeah so wait you're just to be clear because i don't think the dates would work for this you're not saying that Rawls in cont- influenced Rawls, Rawls influenced Piaget. You're saying that it's like, that's an analogy. It's, no, no, no. I am saying contemplative. You're saying Rawls, uh, I thought Piaget was writing before Um, Rawls. Oh, sorry, sorry. It it was Kant to Piaget and Kohlberg, who was equally influenced by Rawls and and Piaget. So that's how, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how it works. You're right. Um, Kohlberg loved Rawls and had a very Kantian notion of, of morality. And right. Piaget loved Kant. So if you like look at Piaget's <laughs> books, they were like child's conception of time, the child's conception of space. These were all like the Kantian yeah, categories. The categories, yeah. 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 Interesting. Yeah, it was funny. That's, yeah, that's right. Kohlberg is, uh, I, he had this like stages of more morality and then it goes like utilitarian and then <laughs> yeah, Kant, exactly. you, you transcend to the next yeah, stage. Like, the like final Kant. mature stage is <laughs> when you're it's a the categorical imperative, basically. Yeah. 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 <laughs> And, you know, Kohlberg and Rawls, I think, was Rawls at Harvard? Um, Rawls was at Harvard, yeah. Yeah, and so was Kohlberg at the time, so they must have, like, buddy-buddied up. So, like, yeah. yeah, yeah, there was probably some... There was probably uh, fucking, there was definitely fucking. There was fucking and <laughs> a lot of jealousy, both on the dog's part and <laughs> on the part of, like, I don't know, who else was there? Robert Nozick probably wanted, wanted a piece of that, too, but... <laughs> that's why he did the Wilt Chamberlain uh, you know the 50s like, and 60s were crazy man <laughs> <laughs> like a Nozick Kohlberg Rawls threesome like you could just <laughs> you could go to like a faculty meeting and you just see that and you just walk in on that like with their like pinkies touching and their gig- giggling like <laughs> <laughs> here's I'll, I'll give you a means to an end <laughs> Um, all right so dogs like sum up the first segment before we go to uh, Uh, good evidence that dogs engage in jealous behavior which means that dogs have the ability to experience a complex social emotion um all right 
All right. We'll be back for to talk about one of the great movies of all time, Ikiru. Yo. I feel like we went back to our roots, like dog fucking and like yeah. psychology. <laughs> <It was> classic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you by BetterHelp. I live in a small town, Ithaca, New York, and there's not a lot of therapists here, not even a lot at Cornell, um, despite there being a whole lot of students. And I was recently talking to uh, some people who were looking for therapists but were unable to book appointments. And I let them know about BetterHelp because, look, there are times when we're all going to need help and there's not always times where we can find that help easily. Uh, But things are different now. Technology, the internet has unlocked the ability to better be able to take care of your own mental health. That's what BetterHelp is about. BetterHelp is a service that can help you connect with a therapist, a licensed professional therapist in a safe and private online environment. What they'll do is once you log on, uh, you'll fill out some forms. They'll assess your needs and match you with a therapist that has experience in the particular area that you're struggling with, whether that be depression, anxiety, or grief, or anger, or anything else, they'll be there to help. You can start communicating in under 24 hours via online chat, telephone, even text messaging. Anything you share is confidential. It's convenient. It's affordable. There is help, financial aid for those who cannot afford it. Again, these are uh, professional therapists that are available to you with the click of a button. You can check out the testimonials that are posted daily on their site if you want to learn more about people's uh, experience with BetterHelp. But look, so many people have been using BetterHelp. They keep coming back to us. They keep recruiting counselors. They're available in all 50 states across the world. So if you want to start living a happier life today, as a listener of Very Bad Wizards, you'll get 10% off your first month if you visit betterhelp.com slash VBW. So join the over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash VBW. Our thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time that we like to tell everybody how happy we are to interact with you for in all the different ways that you do. And normally, I'm fully on board with that. I love interacting with you on, say, Reddit or Twitter or emails. But, um, you know, I'm going to have to rethink things after the vote. The probably fixed vote, since it was all engineers, (laughs) apparently, that were working for it. They fucked with the algorithm, but um, I got my ass kicked. You got, did you get spooked? Did you get spooked? 
thank you. I'm going to interrupt Handler's portion right now just to say thank you to all those rational people who voted on the side of reason. It would be hard to live in this world if I didn't know you were out there and yeah. existed. Yeah, and thank you for trying lecturing me about fucking God of the Gaps and... <laughs> uh, like what was the other thing that people like? I never like I never I, I mean, knew this position. You, like I've never been them. Like, I, like earlier in my obvi- life, <laughs> you obviously needed to learn. Uh, how are I, you going to stop? What kind of open mindedness is it if you don't if you don't open yourself to being? <laughs> we we are we're going to do a bonus episode where we clarify a few things. Like for a example, bonus like episode. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Uh, but like this whole thing where like ghosts can't be real because otherwise somebody would have won the Randy challenge. Like that that thing that you oh were, you like, mean doing you on- mean that incredibly <laughs> difficult high bar set by some old man in a video camera. <laughs> well, yeah, actually, like uh, because. Like, it has to be able to be captured on video camera. We better get through this support segment. We've already had complaints. So, (laughs) anyway, like, thank you. Like, fuck all of you or most of you. Not all of you. There are some great people out there. But but also, I love you. Oh, and you can uh, tweet to us at (laughs) VeryBadWizards, at uh, Peas, at Tamler. And email us, verybadwizards at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram. Like us on Facebook. Give us a, a, a rating, a nice rating for Dave. It's probably for Dave and, like, his work. Yeah, don't uh, average it because then it will be 2.5. <laughs> Apple Podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and if you want to support us in more tangible ways, um, we really appreciate that. We, we love our uh, Patreon supporters. We love the people who, who reach out to us. Uh, via PayPal. Um, if you want to support us, you can go to our verybadwizards.com page and there'll be a tab called support and you'll see how you can sign up for either of those. If you do become a Patreon subscriber, there are rewards that you will get, like possibly a forthcoming bonus episode on ghosts. Um, but you also will get at $2 and up, you'll get all the bonus episodes, $1 and $1 and up, you get my Beats, five volumes of the Beats uh, that I've put together throughout the years. And at $5 and up, you not only get those things, but you get special access to the five-part Brothers Karamazov series that we did for Himalaya. If you don't want to go through Patreon, you can always go to Himalaya directly and and uh, pay for those or sign up for Himalaya. Um, and you also get to vote for uh, the Patreon selected episode that this year we, we're going to have to do an episode. This year's going to be a hard one. There's a lot of suggestions, yeah, yeah that we have to narrow down to five or six, and a lot of them are really good. So, right, you know, right. we always so, consult this uh, list for the, you know, episode ideas. So. Right. It, it's never just one episode, but yeah. um, but we really appreciate everybody who took all the time to to write those suggestions, and we will do our best to pare them down, and then the five dollar and up supporters get to vote on them. Um, if you want to support us in ways that also get you some cool shit, you can go to our website verybadwizards.com, and you'll see tabs for t-shirts, and you'll see tabs for mugs. Our mugs are ready, as we uh, announced before. It's just, you know, sweet, sweet gear that shows that you love us. And we love getting pictures of you guys wearing 
those things or drinking from them and sending them to us. So we jerk so, yeah. off to those pictures. Well, like, yeah, we jerk off to most things, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> including yeah. those. <laughs> so, so thank you to everybody. Uh, we very much appreciate it. And now we shall continue with our discussion of Ikiru. All right, well, let's talk about Ikiru. This is a 1952 movie by the Japanese master filmmaker Akira Kurosawa. Um, this, he just came out just two years after he made Rajaman. Um, and it's a couple years before The Seven Samurai. So it's um, kind of mid-career. He was 42 years old um, wow. when he made this movie. Wow. The protagonist is an older man. It's not totally clear what his age is. I, what would you on purpose, I looked up the actor's age. The actor was approximately 47 years old, depending on when, when they filmed. And uh, so he's definitely playing, I think, an older man. because. Yeah. But, but I could see in his face that he probably was like close to our age, which yeah. you know just made my death anxiety even stronger. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he but, but seems and certainly acts older. Yes, he does. Because right. he has like... You know, a son that's married and like uh, yeah. he has gray hair. He he does a good job of like he hunching stoops, over, like a, yeah, kind yeah. of. So he's a bureaucrat. Um, he's a section chief of the Office of Public Affairs. And right at the very beginning, the first shot of the movie is an X-ray of his stomach, and we learn that he has stomach cancer, and then we learn that he has only six months to live, roughly. He might think twelve, but it's probably more like six, according to the doctor. Uh, we can talk about that scene where they don't tell him he has cancer, right, but he right. knows it. Right, because uh, we found out through a narrator. Like, yeah, we find out through. Well, no, but in the scene that he he finds out that he has cancer only because of the he he meets some guy in a waiting room yeah. that sort of tells him if the doctor says this, which is like that you have a mild ulcer and you can eat whatever you want, that means you're going to die yeah. within a year. Yeah, and so and the doctor just won't tell him the truth, which is apparently like what doctors would do in Japan at that time according to what I read anyway. So anyway, uh, he, he finds out that he has just a limited number of months to live. And then he thinks back on his last 25, 30 years, his very chilly relationship with his son and daughter-in-law, that he, that he never missed a day at work, but that his job was pretty much to ensure that nothing ever got done, that you would just send people who had, who had needs and complaints to some other department and they would just keep... Um, rotating around the various offices. And so now he's like angry at himself, full of regret. He feels like that he hasn't really lived at all, that he's just been killing time his whole life. And he's right. Uh, So then he kind of wants to punish himself, but he also wants to live, um, but he has no idea how how to do that. And he goes on like a couple of different stages. It's like a journey. It's kind of like an odyssey at this point. And he meets a kind of Nietzschean novelist, who takes him out in the town, tells him he has to be greedy for life and shows him like the pleasures of nightlife and dancing and drinking and pretty girls. But, and you know, for reasons we can talk about, like he can't, it doesn't fully work. It's not that he doesn't have a good time or he doesn't appreciate those things, but he can't keep doing that at his age and his condition and also with his kind of mournful temperament. (laughs) That uh, You can't just sing sad songs at the strip club, you know? (laughs) Yeah, which we should definitely, I want to talk about that scene. Uh, So then he comes across a former worker in his office, a young woman named Toyo, who just kind of exudes vitality, just one of those people who's just alive. And he senses that in her, maybe for the first time, like he didn't even, he didn't have enough life to even notice that. He's a widower, right? Yeah, because yeah. he's a widower uh, for many, many years. And so he starts buying her meals, stockings, and gifts just to kind of spend time with her 
which at first is fine, but then it starts to be very vampire-like, like or you know, like he's trying to suck the life out of her yeah. almost explicitly, and this makes her deeply uncomfortable. And so that this has to end. And then finally, at that right at the kind of low point of that, he he makes a decision to do one final thing before he dies, which is to help a group of women navigate just this impenetrable Japanese bureaucracy to cover a cesspool in their really poor neighborhood and then build a park over that for the children there. And then once he makes that decision and takes the the, the, the first step towards accomplishing that, the narrative immediately just shifts abruptly to Watanabe's wake after his death. And up to this point, we've just been following Watanabe, seeing the movie from his perspective, but now we learn all about his efforts to get the park built um, via reports from the co-workers, and little sni- we get little snippets of flashbacks of things that they're describing. Um, and then we also learn that he died on a swing in the park just after the park's completion. And it's one of the most famous and most hauntingly beautiful shots in all of movie history. So that's a brief synopsis. Dave, I'll start off just with the easy question because I know you hadn't seen this movie before. What is Kurosawa telling us about what it means to live? It's a good question. I- I mean, I think that the simple answer is that you get meaning through being productive and and finding work that is meaningful. In this case, you know, we're introduced to these women at the very beginning who are really eagerly trying to get the cesspool covered at the very least, and they're getting the runaround. And when when uh, uh, Watanabe like actually gets the idea that, oh, I can spend the last six months of my life actually getting this done because I know how to navigate this stuff, like it. You can even see the moment he decides that, that he stands up a little taller, you know, yeah. like it's a great performance. And it's amazing. And so, so maybe working in the service of others is what, what is giving life meaning, but at the very least working by achieving your potential. Like he's been a, a bureaucrat who knows the ins and outs of the bureaucracy and is ex- exactly as you said, um, weirdly tasked with not getting anything done even though he knows what it would take to get something done and so so meaning through work meaning through work that helps others yeah like i think both of those things are are present in his final act the act that seemed to give him some sort of a deep sense that he had fulfilled at least one purpose yeah and done something lived in his life but i think like it's not totally clear whether it's just the taking action part of that or the fact that it was for others or some combination of right. both of those things. Right, because the uh, taking action for others sort of as a bureaucrat is what got him excited. But it, it could be that whatever gets you excited to be productive in the last years of your life, that's enough. Like it, and that that was the project yeah. that was uh, available to him. Right. And that is his job. Right. But, you know, the, they had made, like at the beginning of the movie... It was very clear that all the people who work in this bureaucracy, and this is clear during the, the scenes at the wake, is that the way to protect your position there is to do nothing. And um, and to closely guard the secret that you're doing nothing. Like or that like right. <laughs> your job is essentially. Because, you know, as the as the young woman, um Joyo Joyo? Is that Toyo? Toyo, Toyo um yeah. You know, she tells this joke at the beginning about the bureaucrats, um, like the reason that they keep going to work isn't they don't because, take vacation. Yeah, yeah, isn't because 
the stuff won't get done, it's because when they leave, everybody will realize that they're completely unnecessary for what is getting done. <laughs> and exactly. that, that you could tell that's sort of like a, a, it was a disrespectful joke to tell in that context. Everybody's sort of like bowing their heads down. But it was totally accurate. But it was absolutely like, accurate. It comes, it comes back, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and, and like, this is what I think is so relatable about the, about the movie is I think a lot of people worry that they're in jobs where their purpose really is to make sure that nobody realizes that they're not that necessary, right. you know? And so they, I think this is like, like a characteristic of so many bureaucracies and so many just institutions that a lot of the people there are just struggling to make it seem like they're necessary when they, you know, they probably aren't. There are whole professions that exist because that's just what people do. You know, this is a total aside, but I've thought about this in the context of education where there's a couple things that have happened. One, there's been a rise of online education, like services that provide online education, like even things like Coursera. You could take Paul Bloom's Coursera course. And then we got hit with COVID, which meant that we all became online educators. So now um, it really does seem to be the case that like we could have a, a system where people took the bulk of their early classes at least from just an online source you know because we've been we've been trying to value online education this last year so (laughs) so that it makes sense and uh and what we do might be we might be replaceable soon i mean not as podcasters but yeah yeah no no no. (laughs) that's clearly necessary we're essential workers but um no, I, I, yeah, you know, it's funny because my initial reaction is I think, you know, they had, they tried to do this online revolution like six or seven or eight years ago and then it just didn't take yeah. and then COVID comes and I feel like if anything, it makes, it should, it should make people feel even more like, no, you need the in-person experience, but maybe of course I would say that. Yeah. You know, just like the people in the movie, you know, like. Can we talk yeah. a little bit about, I don't know how we're going to divide up this this conversation, but the scenes of the bureaucracy where, you know, the opening scene where all of those papers are in yeah. a wall behind him, all these papers are on his desk, and all he's doing is, uh, you know, has his official seal, which I take it means a lot, like that, that having that seal on a paper is really the most important part of his job. And he's just sitting there at his desk, you know, moving paper, seal it, you know, moving yeah. another paper, stamp it, paper, stamp it. And that that's it. And it conveys the emotion of a dreary bureaucratic job, um, I think, very well. Like, I, I don't know if that's yeah. what offices actually looked like, but it's a desperate looking office to me. Like, it's uh, it makes me uncomfortable to see. Well, cause, yeah, the, the piles of paper yeah. are like kind of, Tied together, tied together, in popping out like they're not neatly stacked or anything. They're just <laughs> right, and they like bury people. Like they, they, they get in the way of people seeing other members of the office. Yeah. like they can be like, it's like you're, right. you're you're buried in all this paperwork. And yes, like the the stamp is important, but it seems like it's not until he he stamps uh, Toyo's um, resignation letter that we see that it actually does anything significant that it allows anything to happen because you get a really good scene right in that opening of the runaround that they give these women about the park 
they just get sent from office to office. Oh no, that's a park thing. Oh, that's a sewage thing. Yeah, oh, that's, no, a, that's, that's a great a, scene to show the yeah. to show the bureaucracy. It just gives a sense of like it's just a, an example of what their job. All this like this bureaucracy that's in post-war Japan, you know, yeah. six years after Hiroshima or whatever. Like this is what it was like if you were actually trying to get something done. Like it wouldn't happen. Yeah. And by the uh, way, we do the narrator who only shows up at the beginning and a little bit at the end, I think. Um, yeah, he says that there was a time when he was might have done something worthwhile. And he opens his desk, and you see that in his desk was this like plan for, to improve efficiency, like from 1932 or something like that. It was like you know 20 years ago. Um, yeah. But it's buried. He never actually followed through with it. You know. It's, yeah, which is very tragic. Yeah. That's a good. Uh, a good insight there because that's an important fact about him is that the life just got drained out of him and we don't know exactly when the mother died but it was probably a little bit after that his wife we know a little Uh, bit because uh the kid the funeral procession the kid was like what he was pretty young like his his son who is now like in his i'd say late 20s at least right so then so it was like probably right around 20 years ago yeah so maybe it could even be tied to the fact that although it seems like everybody else in the office is kind of the same way, yeah. but in any case, both things that could have given his life meaning yeah. just sort of left around twenty years ago. And then the narrator was kind of mean to him. He said he'd be boring to describe his life now. He's not really living. Yeah. Essentially, saying he's a zombie right yeah. now. This is not real life. Um, and the only thing that's interesting now is when you find out his death sentence. Like, will he now finally live yeah. now that he knows he's going to die? Yeah. Um, and that's the question. Now, I think this was off air, but you said you cried during this movie. Is that, in the, is that right? In the very, like in the end, in the funeral scenes and in that beautiful swing scene, um, yeah. I, I was like trying to hold back the tears, but not doing a good job. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, it's so beautiful. So should we go through the different kind of stages yes. of the movie? So you already There's talked like... about the x-ray clinic where he gets diagnosed and, and the, the, the doctors, just the paternalistic assholes of doctors not telling him. Um, yeah. That, that's, I guess that must've happened. I guess they were like, well, he's going to die anyway. Why, why let him die with this like knowledge that he's going to die? But but what's funny, like, or what's interesting and perverse about it is also that he seems, the doctor seems to know that uh, Watanabe is, suspects that what he's telling him is that he's really going to die and still plays the charade through. Yeah. No, no, no. You know, like, it's almost like he's just trying to avoid telling him. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Right, right. It's like, just, just to maybe avoid his own discomfort at having to deal with it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then he says, and this isn't, This is an interesting thing because this movie is constantly challenging, I think, the audience with a lot of these questions using all different kind of techniques. But, like, uh, the doctor just said, like, what would you do if you knew you only had six months to live? Almost, like, as a rhetorical question to the rest of his staff. Yeah. But, you know, that's that's a question that rings out to the viewer. I think that's something that we're all thinking about, you know, as we watch this. Um, you know, like the fact that we're also going to die. Yeah. Um, um, so, uh, yeah. Watanabe, then, his acting at this point where his, he's already hunched over. And, yeah. You know, he's a d- defeated man already. Um, but once he gets the uh, diagnosis, his head starts hanging really low too. Like it's just like, he looks like he's always almost about to bow 
like he's he's just shuffling and or, he's yeah. yeah it's it's or just fall over or like just fall forward over. Kind yeah of. yeah and no the scene right after the doctor's uh the verdict um it all it's just silent yeah. like there's no sound like um and he's just walking on the streets yeah. it's just haunting it's um, like it's like right and it, it perfectly conveys this holy fucking shit this was something i never even thought about yeah like i thought i was gonna get like some uh bicarbonate pepto-bismol pepto and now i'm gonna die yeah but like uh and and it's and then and then there's just it's just a heartbreaking little sequence there because then then he goes you see to, you're, to the house when it's all dark right yeah 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 and the the, the his son and his wife come home and they're talking. We don't know where he is. Right. And they go into this apartment and they start talking about how he's, you know, like it, it, they're kind of disparaging him and talking about the money. And yeah, they want a new house. They hate these traditional new. Japanese houses. We want a new house where we right. don't have they to They want a cold. modern house. How would we get the money? Yeah. Well, dad's retirement pension and his savings. Yeah. You know, they're like counting the, the you know, their dad's money all at this point already. Maybe like collateral, we could use it or something yeah. like that. And then they turn on the light and he's just in the room. And they're very embarrassed about that. And in a dark corner, just like, yeah. you know, Ugh. super creepy. There are a lot of times where the shot of Watanabe is just super creepy on his face. And his face is so good at being, on the one hand, a bureaucrat, dejected bureaucrat on the other hand kind of a creepy old dude i, I think it's just a superb performance a bodily performance by yes the it's a bodily yeah and it's funny because you're right about the creepy side of him that um the peak of it is when he's with uh toyo yeah. in the, the final scene with her but like here it's it is creepy of course he's just sitting there in the dark like uh <laughs> in their kind of quasi apartment even though it's i think his house but um, but but I, it's also heartbreaking to just see him there. He heard like everything. He's just he on the death sentence. Yeah, and and so he kind of excuses himself to go downstairs. Do you think he uh, was he was going to tell them? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And right. Then, the first of many times yeah. he was going to tell them, and, and and like he goes downstairs and just starts. This is so sad. Like this makes me think about my dad at times when he was alone, but he he just opens like a shrine and starts playing music and there's a shrine to his his ex-wife yeah. or his, his wife yeah. that died and he's just sitting there and then the son, or the, so the son and the, the, the uh, daughter-in-law. daughter-in-law just kind of seem like kind of miserable people. They're dicks. <laughs> you know, like, They're such dicks. There's like, you know, I've known people who clearly are waiting for their relative to die, you know, to get money. And, but the son has like he, it's like he has these impulses. Like he knew something was wrong, yeah. and he almost went to go see the, the the father. But then he convinced himself, and she convinced him that no, it was wrong for him to be there, and like I shouldn't be concerned about it. Right. And then there's this yeah. terribly heartbreaking thing where he's just sitting there by himself, listening to music, totally distraught. And then he and then they hear like he hears dad, dad, dad. And so he runs up like a dog, like yeah. a, like a like a dog whose so owner is home or something. Sad. And then all the son is saying is just lock the door. Make sure you lock the door. Yeah, make sure you lock the door. And you and he just uh, in the hallway, yeah, that, that was, little hallway that goes up. That scene just, really did get me. That scene got me. Uh, there's a, a couple of times we'll find out that like, well, don't feel just sorry for him, right? Like we get flashbacks of 
uh, the way that he was with his son. And one of them where he, his son had to go in for an emergency appendix surgery. And his son was like, stay here with me. He's like, no, I got other shit to do. Right. Um, yeah. There's a scene. I don't know what the baseball scene was supposed to communicate, but it might communicate sort of disappointment from his father to his son. Um, yeah. And you, I was wondering that too. Yeah. And the other one, it's it's are a little more ambiguous, yeah. right? You see that his like the son going off to war on the train, and he finds him, and they and they like touch, you know, like as he's being like through the crowd, and then the son just leaves. Yeah. And then there's the baseball scene where he's very proud of him initially and then like he gets caught in a rundown so he's not proud or yeah. he's like but is that a pickle like, is that what we call a pickle a pickle yeah, yeah. Right. pickle or a rundown yeah. yeah yeah see sports yeah you're a, <laughs> a hardcore sports fan. which which in this case indicates poor judgment on the part of the sun probably given what the other spectator was saying he shouldn't have got caught in a rundown after he just got a single yeah. you know he went from pride to the opposite of pride for his son in that moment. Maybe disappointment. Maybe it's not cut and dry that that it's that he was a terrible father. But you do get enough sense that he can't just blame it on the son. Like the son is behaving the way he is totally. for reasons that have to do with things in their past, justified or not. He was not a warm. Well, I don't know. Like when he goes, what I took to be the son going off to war. Uh, yeah. to fight in the in the war, he seems genuinely like you know desperately wanting to 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 find him and and say goodbye. And I don't know if the implication is going to be that he should have pulled him off the plane or, of the train. I mean, or um, I, but like I don't know like what like that seems like what a good loving father would I, do. Yeah. At that time. So in my sort of headcanon, I took it to be an indication that at least from the perspective of the son. Like, oh, now you love me. Now that I might die, mm. right? Like, now that's when you're showing me all this desire to be with me. That's, yeah. That seems, that makes sense. That's interesting, yeah. Yeah, maybe. And, you know, it's very haunting the way he presents these flashbacks because he says Mitsu, like, which, oh, uh, is that his Mitsuo, name? Mitsu, yeah, Mitsu. Uh, Mitsu, he, 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 he says that in the movie, <sighs> Mitsu, as he is going up, like, you know, like the happy dog. Um, thinking that his son wants to talk yeah. to him, and then it that just echoes and yeah. echoes, and the music is sort of like rhythmic in that way. Mitsu, Mitsu, yeah. as you go through all the flashbacks yeah. until he then just goes and locks the door, and it's just like devastating, kind of yeah. like that. I remember I, I I this time I watched it with Eliza, and I had talked it up so much. She asked me if it was a really sad movie, and I was like, no. <laughs> and then we get to this point. She goes, it seems like a really sad movie. <laughs> Yeah, because uh, yeah. it's it's. I don't know if I would call it really sad as a whole, but that first yeah, the first little bit of it, like the first fifteen minutes or twenty minutes or so, is just, it's just like yeah, just kills you. Wrenches, <laughs> it, really, wrenches. it really does, and you want to say, you want to say, well, fuck your past, you know, fuck mm-hmm. that your dad might not have been there for you, like he's there now, he's dying, but they don't know he's dying, right? And so in some ways, I think. Maybe it connects with the son going off to war, resenting that his dad was only showing him attention because he was dying. I think he didn't want to get doted on merely because he was dying. Like, right. You know? And I can see why you wouldn't want, you wouldn't want that. He wanted his son to genuinely, you know, he, he, to be a son to him now, not... Yeah. And one of the really sad arcs of the movie is him coming to terms with the fact that that's unsalvageable 
but that just can't happen yeah. and it never does. Never right? does. Right? Like that's just it just, you know, there are things that you can take that are optimistic from the movie, but rescuing the relationship with his son wasn't one of them. It's like the son seems like there is a still a little flicker of fa- you know, like respect and love for his father, but it always gets put out with the easiest little bit of um, right. Stimuli, the little bit know, that like, I read was talking about sort of like the the wave of of concern about the decay of traditional families in Japan, and yeah. sort of you can see that as saying like you know okay here's how a man might be happy like you were saying the stages right um, he's he's seeking out seeking out uh, material goods uh, sort of sex and debauchery and alcohol. And even family in this case, like he's seeking out, he's seeking out bonding relationships in his family. And it just so happens that at this time in maybe in Japan or in this particular man's life, family life, that also does not give him, you know, I feel like that, I, that would give me a sense of meaning and purpose, like my relationship with my family, but it doesn't with him. So he has to find something else. And I think he goes and finds it in, in work. Well, so I think he wasn't finding it in anything, in, in anything before. Yeah. And I think that like... Because I was thinking about this, you know, you the whole idea of collectivist cultures in East Asia is that family is so much more important. But this is a time where democracy and capitalism now are the sort of reigning ideologies in right. post-war um, in, everything post-war, in post-war yeah. Japan. Yeah, and so there's a kind of individualism that comes with that. Yeah, and their th- their you know, initial conversation about about um, hating having to live in a traditional Japanese house and wanting a modern home, I think just hits that note, right? Where it's like, okay, this generation is no longer traditional. Like they're seeking out things. And it's like he has the, you know, the the atomism, the isolation, the lack of real family bonds that are, you know, like people will say about Western cultures and maybe America in in particular, the kind of individualism, the hardcore individualism without the sort of like sense that you're working, that your work is meaningful. So it's really the kind of, he's really got nothing. It's like providing nothing for him. So this is the first sort of moment where he realizes, okay, my son's not going to pull me out of the depths of despair. And so he just goes, plays hooky from work. He doesn't he doesn't uh, go to work, and then he, he he just kind of ends up in a bar, yeah. right? And we don't know how many days have passed. We get the sense it's been a few days, like four right. or five days. And he's just been kind of wandering around, and he's in this bar, and he gives this right. There's a writer there, and then they end up, and this is a kind of, this is like the next stage. This is his the first real odyssey. Like, he's already realized he's gotten... He's, he, he knows where he is right now. He gets the deal with his son, but that's not. So now he goes on this odyssey to try to figure out what it means to live. And this is the first step is this novelist who's very kind of Nietzschean in the sense that uh, he, he constantly promoting this idea that you have to be greedy for life. You have to live life. And he's just so interested in the fact that um, that Watana, what, how do you pronounce it? Watanabe. Seem to pronounce Watanabe, it. Watanabe yeah. is, he's rebelling against his path self and remaking himself. Yeah. And, and he, he wants so to be a part of it. He that. confessed, I think this guy, this novelist, is the first person he confesses to that he has cancer. And right. the guy, That's right. he really does, he almost takes it as like a, just an, an interesting thing that he might write about in the future. You get the sense that like, oh, yes. I met a man who has six months of life to live. Like what a cool story this would make. But also that he's moved by yeah, him. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Like not yeah. just that it's... No, no, uh, he, yeah. 
yeah. grist. You're right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and I really think the Nietzschean stuff is pretty explicit. At one point he says, Echo Homo, yeah, which is right. uh, a, <laughs> a Nietzsche book about um, being gay, <laughs> uh, what it was like to be German and gay in the late 19th century. <laughs> 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 but I think like, it, you know, this is a kind of like be greedy for life, live, you know, and, and, and he takes him and, and it's actually fairly generous with him in taking him through the nightlife of where, whatever the city is. Yeah, I, did, I, I, know didn't, I know. didn't know what city it was. Yeah, because he has uh, withdrawn, I think at this point, 50,000 yen. Um, yes, right. And, and so he could pay for it, but the novelist is being super generous to give him like a night out to like night on the town on me. Yeah. There's a couple interesting things before they go out. That's where he gets very explicit about, like, he's angry at himself. He's rebelling against himself. He wants to drink to forget that he has cancer and to, um, to but also to punish himself for not living. So it's like, and the, and the novelist says this, your cancer has opened your eyes to the fact that you haven't lived. Yeah. And so he's faced with that now. I think this is really important that he kind of is now confronting, like his eyes are open yeah. about the fact that he's wasted his life, that he's just been marking time. Yeah, he says he's things done. that a novelist would say, you already said the cancer's open your eyes. I wrote some other ones down. He says, we only realize how beautiful life is when we face death. The worst among us know nothing about life until we die. It is our human duty to enjoy life. He says, greed is a virtue, especially greed for enjoying life. Let's go reclaim the night you've wasted. And then he yeah. tells him, I'll be your Mephistopheles. Like, yes. <laughs> Uh, a Faust rat. And I've never read Faust, so I don't totally yeah. get it. Uh, but he says, I'll be your Mephistopheles, but you don't worry, you don't have to give me your soul. He's right. just going to be the devil. He's just going to like... Yes. And and it matches with the sort of night of debauchery that they engage in, where they're just drinking and playing playing games, like carnival games. I don't know. It seems like a, like a slot machines, like an early proto slot machines yeah. kind of yeah. the thing that they're doing, because they, it seems like you can win money at it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then they go, they're, they're dancing, they're drinking. Um, he is like, you know, it's, it's true that he's not taking his soul, I don't think. Yeah. Um, he is just showing this guy a, a good time, and he seems like he's having a good time. Yeah. He's smiling. He's laughing at a certain point. He gets his hat stolen. Yeah. By a girl, and then like buys a new hat, which is I think a swankier hat. You get the sense, <laughs> yeah. That's right. And then is very like protective of the hat. And some, you know, there's some funny things in this movie, and <laughs> yeah. like the stuff with the hat is pretty funny. Um, <laughs> there's, there's uh, a, yeah, they go to like what I don't know if it's like a burlesque show or an actual like brothel, but um, you know, this woman doing like that flapper. 20s flapper dances. To, like, yeah. It's sort of weird. <laughs> I don't think that's a brothel. I think that's just a, like a, I don't know, like a dance, like a place where people go and listen to music and it's, yeah, there's a lot of drinking and there's probably a lot of people um, that are going to have sex there that are meeting. But like, I don't think it's as, it's, unlike the, the next place right. they go, I think is an actual strip club. Right. But, um, but this is where, right, that he... Is it here, yep, this is he before sings, the strip club, that he sings the yep, song? Yep, yep. The, the pianist who'd been playing this upbeat sort of 20s flapper music uh, asks if there are any requests, and he says, yes, uh, I would like to sing whatever the name of the song is. Um, Life is Brief. Life is Brief.
And so the guy's like, all right, like I'll play that. Life yeah. is brief. Fall in love, maidens, before the crimson bloom fades from your lips. This is just the first lines of the song. Before the tides of passion cool within you. And it's it's weird. It's one of the, f- you know, I, I'd say this movie is not surreal in any way, but there are certain moments that are just like, because as soon as he starts, everybody immediately yeah. goes silent, yeah. kind of, and just kind of sits down. And it's like they've been struck with by something right and it, like it never ends like they just have to leave the place he's like killed the buzz yeah uh, he's, he's uh, crying while he's singing it and he sings yeah. it well yeah i think so yeah. I, don't, I don't know if i'm a good judge <laughs> of that but why do you think everybody reacted that way at this place when they were so tolerant and even loving of the fact that he was there and chasing after his hat and all of that like everything had been cool with him up up till this moment and then i you know i Sapping the energy out of a out of a party like that is something that people can do. I remember <laughs> this is in college. I remember it was like one of the first few parties that I attended where I was drinking and like there was this kind of a douchebag and like we were all having fun and then like he starts talking and he's like, "Man, my life has been so hard, man." <laughs> like and then he just went into this super emo shit and. Yeah. Had he been at the center of the party, it would have ruined it. But like all of us around him were just like, yeah, yeah, your life sucks. Like, and just walked away. <laughs> but I think, so I think that's part of it. Like, um, it's sucking the, but, the horniness too. Like there was, that was a horny party. Yeah. Right. And he's sucking the horniness <laughs> out. I also think though, that they are doing what they're doing as a way of sort of deny in their own way, denying the fact that the, that death is uh, on the horizon. Yes. Yeah. That's a good point. And, and Absolutely. Like, Nobody wants and to that's, deal with that. Yeah. And almost in a, like an antic way, almost in a sort of unhealthy way, are they trying to repress that or keep it out of their minds? And this just immediately reminds them that you can do all the dancing and have all the sex that you want. You're still going to die, and that just kind of like <laughs> that makes, wrecks them. That makes at penises that soft. Like it's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and just like yeah, and so I, so I think, and there, there's another scene later, like at the very end of this phase, where um, the he, he they're going home with two women in cabs, and he also does a thing where he just gets out of the cab, maybe to puke or maybe to we don't exactly know why, but when he gets back in, the mood has changed again, and the women say like, "I don't like feeling blue. Let's sing," and then they just start singing like. And and they keep singing even when the writer is saying like no this isn't cool yeah, now stop right. and, and they just keep singing such it's a like great, they don't such a great yeah. shot that captures the difference between the energy of the two girls and the writer who's looking at uh, Watanabe with this like just face of pity uh, and yeah. their their mood has just completely come down because he when somebody says I think the girl says I think he's puking. And then he yeah. realizes that it's because of the stomach cancer and like, and he's just looking at him with his pity. And the girls are just trying to forget that. They're just trying to like... Yeah. Uh, they don't want any part of this mood. And, and I think that's also when the writer realizes that this can't save him. Yeah. Like debauchery. It was good. Like it's not that it was bad. Like he, right. he seemed like he was genuinely he, like... He got a little too drunk maybe, you know? <laughs> he got a too drunk. And, but like the, the strip, when he saw that stripper... Um, you, we only see him. We don't see her, uh, you know, like what he sees, but he seems to like almost just ejaculate. (laughs) She was a very pretty stripper. (laughs) She was a very pretty. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, so like, it's not that it was, it was bad. It just 
it, it wasn't the thing that he needed yeah. to fully live. Yeah, and, it was like a way for him to forget yeah, that he was dying and, of cancer. And it's unsustainable. Like it's, it would be an unsustainable strategy for him. Yes. You know. Right. Don't you get the sense like, like as you get older, it just becomes harder to do those things. Seriously. Like stay out all night and keep drinking and keep dan- and keep getting dragged from place to place. And it's like, you need, you need st- stimulants. I, you need like, <laughs> like I would need an eight ball now to yeah, do like that. The next morning I would just look like Wat- <laughs> Watanabe after his diagnosis. <laughs> Just silence in the street as we walk down. <laughs> uh, so um, when, uh, oh yeah, then this is when he meets, um, he runs into that girl from work, right? Toya. Toya. Yes. And she Toya. needs, she's decided to quit because she can't stand the fact that nobody does anything there. Yeah. And, but she needs his seal yeah. to do it. And so he takes her to her house. And then there's this little kind of comedy of errors like this threes company thing <laughs> yeah. where they, they think uh the the housekeeper and the son and daughter-in-law think that he's hooking up with this girl right who's a who's a lot who's, younger than him she's, she's like a the, lot the, the very young woman in the office this doesn't if there's one thing that doesn't fully work for me in the movie it's this like i don't buy that kind of confusion or think that it was necessarily necessary for them oh, to think that, yeah, that. Y- yeah, you're right to point out to th- like point out Three's company. It is it it is a plot line where, um, a, a, literally a single sentence can clear up <laughs> any <laughs> misunderstanding. So maybe it's just intended to show how bad the channels of communication have gotten. You know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but so then now he kind of leaves with her. She's very she's she is somebody who just is. Uh, alive and like it's palpable. Yeah, like life just radiates out of her. Um, not in a all good way. Like she's a little antic. She's a little manic at times. And like yeah, she but she plays almost like the manic pixie dream girl role. I had that note. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the the original Manny <laughs> pixie chick. Yeah. You know, um, but yeah, it plays like that. Like 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 Kate Winslet and Eternal Sunshine yeah. or something like. Like a little bit, but like one thing you can't say about her is that she's not living. She's she is greedy for life just naturally. Right. And she decided within a year and a half that like working in this bureaucracy was gonna kill, like was just gonna be terrible. And she tells him that and he's like, Yeah, I wish I would have realized that a year and a half. Yeah, and and she just intuitively understands that. And she's very she's poor. Um but she just kind of understands that you can't work at that job or it will suck the life yeah. out of you. And so she just does the thing that you should do in that point, which is get another job. And then he is now just sees that. He kind of feels the life radiating out of her and just starts buying her things like stockings because she has torn stockings and meals and just yeah. wants to be around her. And you see, like, as she's eating, he's just staring at her, just trying to get the life yeah. That she just naturally, without a second thought, has. Right. And um, it's a really interesting sequence, all of that whole thing. You know, there is a scene. Oh, she ends up working. It's interesting how she finds me. She ends up working in a factory that makes little toys for kids. And yeah. and she says, every time I make one of these, I feel like I am playing with a ba- one, a, some baby in Japan or something like that. You know? and, yeah, making friends. Yeah, making friends. That's right. And um, you're like, well, that's just a factory job. Like how much... But but she's found meaning in it. She's found a job that gives her gives her some meaning. Did you see? 
um, the there's a scene where they're coming out of somewhere and she almost gets hit by the bus. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Which, I want to talk to you about with that. Like, did, was that telling us something? Was that? Well, it's it, it parallels a scene where he almost gets hit by a car. And I'm oh. trying to remember where that was. Was that before or after? I think it's before maybe when he comes out uh, getting the verdict uh, uh. that he's going to die. And he almost gets hit by a car. And then this is just like that. Now, why you would have that parallel? Yeah, uh, I'm. I'm not sure, I, but I think one thing. Yeah. One thing that struck me was how unfazed she was at. You know, right. she literally could have died a second ago, and it didn't seem to bother her. And I think maybe it's just showing her mindset is so far from death. Like it's not. It's not her concern at all. So like, dealing with this guy who's clear who's dying is is not like her mind just isn't there. Like she's not. It's, and it's so far from death, not just in terms of she doesn't realize she's going to die. That's not at the forefront of her mind. It's all, She's so far from death just in terms of how she lives, too. So she's like, she's so alive yeah. and just gobbling up life that death just seems like it can't happen. And like she's, yeah, like of course she didn't die by that car almost hitting mm-hmm. her because she can't die. She's just too alive and that's just her character. And it's, and what's interesting is how effortless it is for her and, and natural. And I think that like, I don't know, I was thinking about this and you're going to be mad, but I did assign this for my class <laughs> and we talked about this a little bit. Um, so I'm I was just double doing dipping. double the work in my life, you know, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's like Kurosawa is just pointing out that by the luck of the, like the temperament draw, some people just have this quality of like, I'm making the most out of life and just almost yeah. by nature. And some people have, are like Watanabe and it's just, it's a lottery. Like in that sense, that's a temperament thing. I don't think it's, and, and this kind of, tracks with how I see people, you know, like some people are just so full of life and it's not like they made some big decision or had some epiphany or something like that. That's just how they are. And then there's other people who are, you know, they're, they, it's, it's a real struggle for them to find purpose and meaning and just to, I don't know, like get something out of living, you know? And yeah. Yeah. And she, I think one of the critical things that she ends up telling him when, when she basically is breaking up with him, I mean, even though they weren't really together or whatever, um, she basically is like, I, I can't hang out with you, dude. Like, this is just not, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to do it anymore. And um, they go out to eat and he's explaining, uh, you know, I don't remember if this is the part where she's giving all of the nicknames, but I think it's a scene afterwards where she gives all the nicknames. No, yeah, this, that, that's in the middle yeah. right there. And, uh, which is a sweet scene. Right. And she says, why, uh, yeah, it really is. Why did you, you know, she's like basically getting out of him why he spent 30 years at this like bureaucratic job. And he says, you know, I did it for my son. And if it were me, I would be like, oh yeah, that's, uh, yeah, we sacrificed for our kids. I would have just let him have it. And she is not letting him have it. She points out rightfully, like, you can't blame it on your son unless your son explicitly told you, dad, I want you to spend 30 years doing meaningless work, right? right? I want you to be a mother. Yeah, exactly. Because uh, that was her nickname. Right. She had nicknames for everybody in the in the office, and his was the mummy because he was, like, the walking dead. <laughs> and uh, and so, like, yeah, she says, no, you can't blame it on him. But I think it's – she doesn't say it out of cruelty or even, like, I don't know um, – 
callousness or like she just it's like yeah no it's not totally his yeah. fault because he didn't ask you to be yeah to be that yeah and, and from the perspective of somebody who is young and yeah. has parents who might give her those kinds of guilt trips like he needed to hear that he needed to hear that it was his inactions uh that right. contributed to the state of affairs yeah. At least yeah. So I th- had control. I think that's the that's a that's not the last scene that they have together. That's almost like a good uh, little interlude that they have because I think at the end of the scene that you're talking about, when they're talking about his son, and then she says again, in this case wrongly, you still adore your son. Yeah. And sort of just her just enthusiasm kind of convinces him that he could rescue the relationship with with her son. But then his son, but then, you know, they, they have this horrible scene where he's about to tell the son that he has cancer. And then the son just says, like, just interrupts him by accusing him of having this affair. With this and, young woman and, it's and just how like, disgusting. No, that's it. Yeah. So then the last scene between the two of them, he's literally like in a really creepy way yeah. trying to, he says, I, I, I'm greedy for your life. Teach me how to live like you. Like, teach me how to be like you. She is, he is uh, doing everything but, like, biting her on the neck at that yeah. point. <laughs> and, and he, you know, I think this guy looked a lot younger than he was. I think they just did a really good job of making him look old, and, and, and he did a really good job of acting creepy. There are a number of times throughout the film, I think, as I was saying before, that he has this stare that, like, is just, sometimes his face is, just looks compassionate and kind, and sometimes it just looks like a mouth breather. Like, and in this, yeah, this is a exactly. case where you're just like, run, girl, run. Uh, exactly. Just a, yeah, no, like a, like a mouth breather. <laughs> it's a perfect way of describing it. And then, and, and then like sometimes he'll smile and it's like, you're so grateful that he smiled. Uh, you know, like, oh, thank you. Thank you for giving me that smile. Right. Um, yeah, so then that's the moment right there that you're talking about where she's like kind of f- totally freaked out and clearly done with him. And she says, well, maybe you could build, create something like I do. You know, I'd make these bunnies. And he says, no, I can't. Uh, you know, at the office, I, it's just too late for me. And then just in a mo- moment, and she kind of looks at him and kind of thinks, yeah, it probably is too late for you. You know, like... So she looks like, I don't know what to say anymore. Uh, this is the first time she's speechless. And then he just has this moment where he says, no, it's not too late. I can still do it. I just need to find the will. Yeah. I could I could create, I, I build something, but I just need to find the will. And then he just leaves her and runs down the stairs at this bar restaurant where they have. And it's this very cool thing where uh, there's a birthday party happening with all these rich kind of young people and um, as he's going down, they all sing, and it looks like they're singing to yeah. him, "Happy Birthday." Uh, yeah, and, so great. And and then, but it, you know, like later, you find out that that some that the the girl was coming up. But at that moment, it's like they're singing "Happy Birthday" because he has been reborn in that moment. Like he is, or maybe just born, maybe not even <laughs> right. reborn, right? Maybe it's just birth. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, and then. And then you see him go to the office and like, all right, you know, like he kind of snaps everybody into action. Who They're just shocked that he's there at all. And then it's just like all of a sudden you get this abrupt shift and it's the wake yeah. and he's dead. I remember I looked at the, at the, how much time was left in, and I was like, wait, there's an hour left in this movie. He's dead. That was like, I was, I was a little confused, but not for long because then I realized 
Maybe we should talk about this now. Why do you think he makes this narrative shift, like which I think is pretty radical for the time, to be telling a story one way so consistently and then all of a sudden switch like that? Yeah, it must have been radical for the time. Like it's I I'm just my emotional reaction, so I don't know what his intentions were, but my emotional reaction um to that switch was one where I went from just dejected that our protagonist was dead and not knowing whether he got anything done to when they all started talking about him and telling the stories. Weirdly, my energy level and interest in the story went way up and I was measurable. It was like from one moment to the next, all of a sudden I was like, oh, so what happened? Yeah, okay, this guy's going to tell us, and then this guy's going to tell us. And then they're kind of putting together a puzzle because nobody knew that he had stomach cancer, and they didn't know that he he knew, right? They Like the son certainly said he didn't know he was sick. And so, you know, there's this whole scene where the deputy mayor is at the funeral and um, all the bureaucrats, all the head bureaucrats, and the deputy mayor um, gets sort of called out by the reporters who basically this is how we learn that this guy has taken credit for the building of the park when yeah. on the streets, like word on the streets is that Watanabe was the one who got the park built. And so he's trying to save face. Like, so he goes through all this saving face stuff that you would do in like a deep honor culture, right? Like, you know, all of the people around him are like, yes, yes, it was you, you know, I mean, Mr. Watanabe did some things, but it would be ridiculous to give him all the credit, you know? They're so obsequious yeah. in the way that they're doing <laughs> Yeah, that. exactly. Uh, while he's there, like, uh, they, they shift, you know, they shift once he leaves, but while he's there, it's like, yeah. And you see, this is just a, a politician that has decided to claim the credit for something that not only he didn't do, but that he was a, a like a significant obstacle to getting exactly. Done. And so, so when, um, when all of the members of the wake, they're drinking and they're telling each other stories because the debate they're having is some of them say, no, I think it's fair to say Watanabe built the park. And then other people are saying, no, like our office did all this work. You can't, they're almost having just a causal responsibility argument, yeah. right? And so as the, as they continue telling stories, they're not just sort of building by communicating with each other. The story is emerging of how this park got built but also they're building his redemption for the for the viewer like they are putting together the pieces that led to him finding meaning in life in a way that i think is is just narratively super interesting cuz they're they're discovering something along the way by talking to each other and that intrigue and curiosity that they're displaying as they tell stories is that energy feeds into just the big point of the movie that that he found some meaning yeah and i think and and just to add to that because i think this is also true and also directly tied to the narrative shift is they're faced with their own now they are discovering not only what happened what watanabe accomplished but they also now are realizing that they're in a similar situation. Yeah. Not that they're going to die in six months, but as one of them says, right? Like, yeah. we could all die at any moment. Yeah. And so they're being faced with, like, the the choice. And they keep saying, like, how did he do this? Why? He must have known he had cancer, right? Yeah. Like, why would you do it? And then when they finally kind of decide on, well, then of course he would build the park. Yeah. Because if he only had six months to live. But then they're like, we could all die at any moment. And so now they're faced with this 
with this problem, this like un, like existential problem of we all have a death sentence yeah. and we could all die at any moment. And the only difference between him and us is that he knows roughly when it's going to happen. Yeah. So then what do we do? What are we going to do? What yeah. action are we going to take? And by this point, uh, they're all sloshed. I mean, yes. they're all they're all a mess, except for maybe one, the one who sort of... Yeah, the, uh, the one who seems to get the, the yeah, lesson. Like, yeah. Take um, it to heart. Yeah, and I, I really enjoyed the narrative structure. So exactly what you said is true, because that's that's sort of the, the emotional tone by the end of that, is that they're coming to this realization. And that we are, too. And I that think. we like, are, That's too. what he wants us to... Like, he wants us to face that same problem. That yeah. Is, but I really enjoyed them, like, the, the narrative structure of n- none of them knowing the whole story... And we don't either because we just know he died. And them uh, piecing it together because for him to get credit, which is something that I'm rooting for, right? They've built up this tension this in this mini scene here, in this sub-scene of the movie. There's this tension. Will Watanabe get credit? And they are the ones deciding. It's almost 12 angry men, but, but they're all doing it together where they're like, oh, and I was at this. And so they tell the story about what that. And, and so when they all come together, you realize what a gargantuan task he engaged in yeah right and again well yeah like you said it both gets pieced together for us in terms of the reports that we get but also for them and you know there are certain people who are skeptics you know it's like it's just coincidence that you know an election was coming and like he tries to explain it away he tries to dismiss it there's this one guy but everybody so this is after the deputy chief is gone and and took his like main cronies and so now it's just uh, the people in the office, for the most part, who are there, along with the women who come to just... Uh, right. uh, the neighborhood women pay, who, who burn uh, incense. Bur- burn incense for him, which is, again, like a big thing to tell them, okay, no, there's a reason why these women think yeah. that he was the one that, that did it, and just their emotion, the fact that they're crying. And, right. But they, uh, yeah, so like, but they, but as they get drunker, they come to the realization that it was all him and... And he, he was dying. So, like, the things that he had to overcome was, like, basically facing up to a mob boss, yeah. right? And just giving the mob boss a fate. When the mob boss says, uh, do you val- don't you value your life? He just gives him this look, you know? Yeah. And that then he's like, oh. <laughs> um, and it's interesting to watch the sun during this because yeah, yeah. it's like the sun kind of realized oh, wow, I fucked up and I, you know, I lost, I lost an opportunity to connect with my dad that, and it's my fault. Um, even though he tells himself that it's the father's fault, even then, like, I think his last lines in the movie are, it was cruel for him not to tell us, even though he like tried to, but he knows, he knows at that point. And that's just how it it leaves it with the son. (laughs) But there's the, so then there's, we should talk about just this scene because it's probably the most famous scene in the movie where a a policeman comes in and and sort of confesses that he's the last person to see Watanabe alive. Um, He was swinging in the park, which we had known that he had died in the park. park, But we didn't know the circumstances. And so he comes in and he tells everybody he was just swinging and singing that song, that same song we heard him sing earlier, Life is Brief. And just that he seemed so perfectly content that the cop didn't like try to get him to go yeah. to some place warm. Yeah, and he was a, he was like a, I don't remember his words, but it was like a, a happiness that I couldn't explain, like on his face. You know, he just yeah. very different from the how you would describe him singing that same song in the beginning, in tears and dejected. 
Um, right. Yeah. Right. Because at that time, he's thinking, I never lived and yeah. I never will. And this is a song of like regret. And now this is a song of, you know, it's not like it's, 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 it's a, a victory, right? Yeah, it's, it's, right. it's, I, you know, I did one thing and I did yeah. recognize that life was brief and I didn't just miss out on life. And that's what's so. And I did a good, th I did something for this community. Like, yeah. you know, you, you, we're going to see the kids playing in that park and we're going to see the joy that he brought by getting this done. And the shot the is shot. just so just, just talk about that shot, man. Ugh. Just the kind of slow pan through the like jungle gym. Through the jungle gym. He's we get a side shot in the dark yeah. in the snow of him yeah. singing that song while he's swinging and that's uh, the camera is moving through the panning through the jungle gym as we're seeing him sing yeah. and it's just beautiful. It's just this is where I was like, well, I'm not even going to try to stop crying. <laughs> <laughs> right. What's the point? Like at this point. And then it switches to kind of a head-on shot like yeah. um yeah. Uh, which is also beautiful. And you see his face and you see that exactly like you said, it's a very different kind of expression. And it just a, the whole mood of that song, even though it's the same exact lyrics and the same, you know, same singing, but like it's a totally it's a different, different song. It takes on a yeah, different, a, yeah. 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 And and that's why this this movie ends up being a happy movie for me. Like he, it's, he dies, but his life, that last bit of life was infused with meaning in, in a way that, that makes, I don't know. It's, 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 I don't know if it's full redemption, but yeah. it's redeeming to, yeah. s to some extent. Yeah. There is a cynical aspect to the end though. So, mm. you know, like the end of the wake, right? All the people, all the, all the coworkers are saying, I'm going to do that. Like I've changed. I realize now that I have to live for other people and do things and, and not just, uh, you know, uh, get buried in this bureaucracy. And then the next day, um, they, somebody has a request to, I forget what, like yeah. clean up some sewer spill or something. And they just give it to the, they say, oh yeah, check with this office, you know, just like in the beginning of the movie. Yeah. And then one guy stands up kind of like to protest this. Like, what did, I, I thought, like, did we learn nothing? Yeah. And they all just kind of stare him down. And then there's this great shot of that guy sitting back down and then just getting, Literally, like the papers just swamp his face. To yeah. the point, like, like they, he gets uh, buried in the paperwork. But then he starts walking. A little later, he walks over a bridge and sees the the park. the park where the kids are playing. Yeah, and and at least I got that. That left me with the emotion that not only did he build the park, he didn't change the bureaucracy, but he he changed that guy. I think he, he reached he, one he person. Reached one person, and that's yeah. that's good enough. One certainly, at a time. like at the for for where he was at that moment in his life. Yeah, um, yeah, and I think that's like you know I think Kurosawa is like, who are we going to be? Are we going to be that guy, or are we going to be all the rest of the office workers, yeah. or the deputy chief, or to or are we going to be Watanabe until we find out that we have cancer? Yeah. You know, like. Um, yeah. That's it's in that sense. I, I don't know. Like, what do you think the the lesson is of the movie? The moral I mean, for message. One, yeah, I don't know. So, so for one, that 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 part where they all just go back to normal. You know, this is something that you've heard me mention at least eight times about The Sopranos. Like, which I think is one of the big threats to our just existential health is that like deep important things in life 
fail to, to give any permanent sort of clarity. So we're just creatures of habit. We go right back to yeah. doing what we're doing. It takes a lot. And it t- took stomach cancer in the case of this guy. I don't think Kurosawa is saying like, oh, if only we all could realize that that you know we could get everything done we could live you should live your life like like Watanabe lived his last 6 months i think it's a much more modest uh appeal which is just just know we're all going to die like take a step and think about what what you want the rest of your life to look like you know and yeah and don't get caught in a rut where you are just killing time until you die yeah um, don't get caught in this kind of cycle where you're not creating, you're not doing, you're not taking action, you're not taking real action, and you're and and I think and maybe you're not helping others. Yeah, you know, you're making like, no difference in the world. You're making. You're, yeah, you're leaving no mark. You're leaving nothing like that. Yeah. Yeah, um, and I think that just as as just another layer, as just a way to deal with one's mortality, like. He didn't go kicking and screaming in the end, you know, and that right. that is a beautiful way to go, like we were talking about in the beginning. But the only reason that he could was that he was able to look back on, like you said, even just that last part, but to be able to look back on your life and sing a song that that yeah. was happy, you know? Right, like, right. Sing a song about the briefness of life, but it's not consumed in regret. Yeah. It's, something else yeah this really it really reminded me of of just our discussions on this podcast of meaning you know and like meaning doesn't have to be this giant thing that's out there in the universe it is often just local it is what you do what you care about what you you know whether you uh, achieve the goals that excite you and that make you happy whether you help others whether you make the world a better place like that's the source of meaning it's not you're not just carried on by the wave of life and just yeah. like show. Like I think it is. It has this kind of existential yeah. quality of like you are creating meaning in your life through action. And you know, like interestingly, not through necessarily pers- connections with personal relationships or something like that. That's which an interesting you might feature. Expect. Yeah, you might. Yeah, you might. You might think that the solution to the existential crisis that Kurosawa gave us would be that he built a deep relationship with the girl. For instance, yeah, like or, he, the, the, or the women, which or maybe, the, but or the son that he came came back to the son. He's giving us a very specific, you know, and maybe it's po- maybe it's a post-war Japan specific kind of message that he's yeah, given. Like you can't depend on any of those things. Yeah, and and, and be, all like yeah. let's rebuild our country. Let's take some pride in our right. lo- like our parks and in our right, right. That's yeah. a good point. That's a really good point. It's like we have to rebuild. They're in a they're a society that needs to rebuild in like literal and also like I think metaphorical ways just rebuild their identities right and and uh, that that the message might be something that is super specific to the context of post-war Japan doesn't mean though that it's not that deeper message (laughs) right obviously um that's great art does that great art this is why this movie kicks ass it's great we didn't really talk about I think we just assumed that that we both thought the movie was great and you know, the world <laughs> yeah. thinks the movie's great. But having just watched it, um, especially once that second part of the movie kicked in, um, it, I was glued to it. At the beginning, you know, the pacing of old movies is the pacing of old movies. You have to have a certain kind of temperament and patience to get through some of the pacing of older movies. 
But once that had been set up and we're hearing the story, I'm like, and then what? And then what? You know? Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. just this enormous emotional release at the end where I was just like, I cared. I really cared. I cared not only about him getting that shit done. I cared about his community realizing what he had done and his community. Yeah. I wanted that park to be named Watanabe Park more than I wanted yeah. anything today. Like today, right. today <laughs> right. my primary want was for that park to be named, for him to be recognized for his actions. And he did. Yeah. He clearly didn't. That wasn't the he source of meaning for him. It Not was just to yeah. get it done, you know. And yeah. I, and I no, love yeah. the end where he's looking over at all the kids playing. He's created. He's created a piece of land that is sustaining families in a way right. that like his family suffered. And like the, I love that it's sort of like. Hey, families are important, you know. The, the the mom's calling the kids in for dinner, you know. It's it's really cute. And it's just and it, you get why that's meaningful and it's also an indictment of Japanese society, but again this generalizes to the fact that like this was such a unique and special um achievement that people had to puzzle about it and kind of work it out like, yeah. like it was some huge mystery how this could possibly happen that they would actually do their jobs do you think they would it actually was do what their positions say do you think what? do you think this was hyperbole about the bureaucracy do you think it was that bad i i, I don't know like yeah. i think there's a lot of the things in the movies that seem a little turned up to 11 like yeah. a little heightened there's like some dance hall scene in the debauchery phase yeah. where it's so crowded that there's no way something could actually be that crowded, yeah. it seems like. There's just no space between any people in this enormous hall. And, like, right. what city is this also? Like, how many people <laughs> could possibly be out on some, like, random, like, Tuesday night? Like, <laughs> and, uh, and, yeah, like you were pointing out, like, how many how many times would just, like, one old man be able to stop the whole, the whole party and sing a song? Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I think it probably was pretty fucked up. I mean, our yeah. our bureaucracies are fucked up. Yeah, like the yeah. things that we can't get done. Yeah. Um, so, who knows? It's a big uh, Rube Goldberg machine. <laughs> I one of my favorite lines in in the the movie is at the end when they're all resolving that they're going to, or they're talking about how terrible the bureaucracy is. What one of them says, just to get a garbage can somewhere emptied out, you need enough paperwork to fill another garbage can. <laughs> Right. That's a great that's a great line. You know, uh so I pair movies like the the students in my class have to watch one movie outside of class and we watch one movie in class. The movie I paired this with was Groundhog Day. Oh so it's a similar kind of thing, right? Yeah, like a uh, a man needs to is wasting his life and needs something to make him actually live it well. And I think they're they're you know, I think they come at it in very different ways, but it's about the same kind of problems. Yeah. What happens when you realize that you're sucking at living life? Yeah. You know? I love also there was a quote where um, when the guys are putting together the pieces of like wondering whether he knew he was sick and they're recalling instances that gave it away that they're like, yeah, I think he really did know. Um, there is a, a point where he says, uh, where Watanabe says in response to somebody, I can't afford to hate people. I haven't got that kind of time. And I thought that right. was just such a such a great little piece of wisdom um, that yeah. that especially in like lately Twitter, it makes me yeah. <laughs> it makes me think. Yeah, no, I think that's like it's it's a beautiful sentiment. It takes energy. It takes like emotional investment to be angry at people. And if you are, um, yeah. and if if is you have limited it? time, yeah. that's not what you is wasted that, on. Is that worth your time? And yeah. there's also heartbreaking scenes where they're remembering where he he. There's one scene where when no one was looking, he was just barely able to walk down the hall. 
you mm. know, because he was clearly, clearly saving his energy for all of the tasks that he needed to get done, um, supervising the the garbage. I mean, the the construction site. Um, yeah. And then and then just drained. He really, you know, had this sort of heroic effort at the end there. And the and the women are there to support him. Yeah. Like, there's one point where he falls down, and like there's a a coworker that doesn't help him up, just kind of sits there, kind of stunned. And then the women immediately run and help him yeah, up. Yeah, that's and, a good. That's actually a good observation that we see a, a couple times. This community of women, you know, yeah. the ones who are trying to get stuff done, and and you don't see men, you don't see their husbands. You, you see this community of women who are there for him, and he's there yeah. for them, and it's really the only community that's there for him yeah exactly and you don't get the sense you don't know to what extent it's deep like yeah, their connection right. is it just mutual but they gratitude certainly on their respected part? him so much that they were bawling yeah. at his funeral right yeah. right right exactly but you don't like were they talking <laughs> yeah you know, you know, like, right. were they that that's what i don't think we know if they had any kind of regular social bond beyond this deep bond yeah. that they were doing stuff Both for each other i like to yeah. think that that they would do things like bring, and we did see them bring him like something to drink. I don't know if it was soup or something. Like I like to think that they were the secret angels taking care of him throughout all of this. You know. Yeah. All right. Else? Let's wrap up. Uh, live your life, listeners. Don't be like Watanabe. Don't find out too late that you spent we, the majority we, of your life not living. I think that the solution, Tamler, is to send everyone fake doctors' reports that they have some kind of terminal cancer. You know, yeah. the world would just be a better place. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting question, but again, it's like, but really, does it matter whether it's in a year or 30 years, 40 right. years, you know? Again, like, I, what I take from it is live your life such that you can sing that pretty song, that you can sing yeah. that song with happiness. Whatever that means to you, live your life that way. Good. Well, let's go out on that. Join us next time on Very Bad Wizard.